The world is a scary place, but we're going to learn how to survive it together. Welcome to Camp Catastrophe, where we counsel you on crises. Welcome back, campers. My name is Counselor Poppy. And this is Counselor Rain. And today, we'll be discussing recipes and foraging practices. So in preparation of today's episode, I've gone ahead and prepared three of my favorite recipes to make while camping. But before I get the ball rolling on that, I thought it would be best to talk about the types of food that you should bring while camping, as well as the sort of energy you'll be expending. I'm very excited about the munchies today. <laughs> yes. Did you, did you prepare your favorite camp snacks for this episode? I have also prepared my favorite camp snacks, yes. So we'll certainly <laughs> be getting into that. And you'll find that there's actually some more fun snacks than you might have thought, such as Ooh. some chocolate-covered M&Ms and some peanuts, you know, everybody's favorite circus food. I have, like, this has never happened before in my life, quick tangent, um, is that at my one job, I've never actually known as many people with peanut allergies as I do now. <laughs> So to everyone, yeah, to everyone at my work that's going to be listening to this, um, we'll probably have non-peanut related things, but maybe just don't include those ones. Well, I've got some allergy safe snacks. I wouldn't forget about the inclusivity. I I feel like we could get sued if someone dies because of that one. Gonna be totally honest. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but anyways, okay. So um, one of the biggest things I want to talk about is the types of food that you should be bringing while camping. Um, And one of the big pointers that I want to make is that when you're camping, carbohydrates are your friend. Like I know we live in a culture where people want you to be low on carbs, it helps you cut your weight, but I don't want that. Okay. We we do not endorse diet culture in this household. No, your body needs carbs because why? What are carbs? Their energy. I didn't know if you were waiting for me to respond to that one. And I was like, energy? 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 So, yeah. So, essentially, carbohydrates are the key to making your body produce glucose, which is uh, your body's main energy source. So, it's a type of sugar that can be stored uh, for later Or it can be used right away. So when you're camping and you're making your fire and you're lugging the campfire wood around the campsite, you want to make sure that you have the carbs to do that. When you're running Mm -hmm. away from a grizzly bear, you want to make sure you have the carbs to do that. (laughs) Um, So carbohydrates you can find in foods like fresh fruits and berries. Um, Certain vegetables are – so vegetables – uh, breads, Vegetables. pastas, and dairy. Pro- All right, so we're gonna cut a whole minute out of this, aren't we? It's gonna be one of those days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's okay, it's okay. Um, so I'm just gonna go back to so carbohydrates are found in foods like fresh fruits and berries, vegetables, breads, pasta, dairy products. Um, so some of the recipes that I've included today are gonna kind of focus on carbohydrate-based foods. Cool. Inu, so we. Um, so then just to go over how your body is actually using carbohydrates, I'm going to tell you, once you eat your meal, the carbs are going to be taken and broken down into sugars, such as glucose, um, which will then be absorbed into the bloodstream. 
and this energy that you get from glucose is going to supply the energy you need to your muscles and your tissues to do everything that you need to do. Um, carbohydrates are good for your brain, so they're going to keep your brain going with the energy it needs. Man, maybe I don't eat enough carbohydrates. I don't know if my brain is going as fast as it usually should. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that is the case. Yeah, you should really. Uh, that's why, and that's why diets low in carbohydrates today? aren't necessarily viable. Like you can do it for a week or two, like to get your quick cut, as people would say. Um, but you really should be implementing them into your diet on a daily basis. So kind of like keto diet stuff isn't always the most recommended and you definitely shouldn't be doing that going on hikes right and i'm not here to tell anybody what their diet should be but a lot of the times low carb based diets do not last and once you break that diet it's just kind of going to be like you took five steps back and obviously i can't speak for everyone but especially when you're going to be expending energy like you do while hiking and camping you're going to want carbohydrates um so some of the snacks that you could bring that would be good for you um, in terms of carbohydrates would be berries, um, fresh fruits like apples, and... Uh, apples, the little, like, cuties, the little tangerine the little cuties tangerines, that you get in the bag the cuties, that you got to yes. make sure that you don't let them rot in your fridge when you first buy them. Because isn't that always what happens with cuties? You, you buy them. And then you go in your fridge, like, a month later, and you find, like, three of them at the back. Oh, well, I don't know. In my household, yes. Like, you'll find, like, three loose cuties in the back of your produce drawer, and you're like, damn, why are you still here? Okay, but here's the problem. I'm almost certain that I have, like, a vitamin C deficiency, (laughs) and I'm over here eating five of these cuties. Just these little kids, stroke, 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 these little ass cuties <laughs> and making um, tangerine flowers out of them like they're origami because I eat too many in a single sitting. Is it too Is many that if you have bad? a deficiency? Uh... You know, your body craves what it needs. Oh, maybe I'm low in potassium now that I think about it. That seems like a problem for when you are telling me what I need. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We are not licensed dietitians. We are mostly just telling you how to survive. We are simply just some young camp counselors trying to offer our two cents. Yes. Um, So in that two cents, I'll include blueberries, acai, cranberries. Uh, What else? Mango. And then um, you can bring prepackaged nuts, like roasted almonds or pistachios. Everybody loves pistachios for some reason. I don't really like them. I'm sorry if that makes me like sacrilege to the nut family. Um, <laughs> but whatever you would prefer. Nuts are a great You're source of energy. Sacrilege to the nuts. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh my god, that's probably going to be the ugliest laugh to date. <laughs> that's okay. That uh, means we're having a good time. I can't um, believe you're anti-nut, Rain. Anti-nut. Not anti-nut, just anti-pistachio nut. Okay. <laughs> and then another fun snack that you could... A nutter. Oh, very funny. <laughs> oh, very funny. Uh-huh. 
get a load of this one. <laughs> so another, not a noter, <laughs> uh, fun snack that you could bring are something like pita chips. Um, they're good and they're, uh, as long as you're going for like a lower sodium chip, obviously like higher salt content is going to contribute to dehydration, which is what we'll talk about later. So, um, with that being said, and me going over and fawning over carbohydrates, I think mm-hmm. I'm going to leeway into some of my favorite recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What's your favorite food. breakfast food? My favorite breakfast food? Okay, so I do actually have um, two favorite breakfast foods. So are you asking for camping, for everyday life, or when I actually have time to cook? Whatever you want to tell me. I just want to know. Hmm. 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 So on, on days when I'm getting out to work or to class, I, I keep a lot of frozen bananas in the fridge. Mm. Um, so I chop up the bananas. I put them in a blender with oat milk because your girl pop can't uh, take dairy the best nowadays. <laughs> Don't worry um, me either. <laughs> Being totally honest over here. And then I get one of those, like, breakfast essentials because I know I don't really eat on time all the time. Right. And I blend that all up, and it becomes kind of like like healthier banana milk in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're asking me what I ate for breakfast today, um, I had a triple shot <laughs> espresso drink i mean that's hella baller i don't think i ate food with it until way later you said i didn't have a single shot espresso i ain't even have a double shot espresso you had a triple shot espresso i feel as though this is going to be the bad part when all the campers realize that i am not the healthy one (laughs) i am healthy in what i eat regularly but not in either first aid, nor in my own self-preservation. I mean, with triple shot of espresso, I can I can agree. Okay, okay. Considerably, <laughs> I am the one that's been doing experiments on the side for future episodes. This I never true. said that I had to live, but I keep doing so. So I'm going to continue to do it because you I love you. must be doing campers. something right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's fine. So to kick off these pre-prepared recipes that I've got for you, I'm going to start off with a nice, wholesome oatmeal. When you're camping, um, I, if I am able to prepare ahead of time, I always bring just a nice medium pot to have. Um, it's a nice thing to have as a tool while you're camping because you can kind of cook anything in a little pot like that. Um, so that's all you're really going to need for this recipe. And, wh- and what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get about two cups of water um, and you're going to heat the water in a pot with that you're going to have a cup of oatmeal Uh, you could do rolled oats is probably what i would say is the best sort of oat to go with for this particular recipe Um, and if you're able to pre-package spices you can bring some cinnamon nutmeg um, and allspice and then something that would be good to top the oatmeal with would be hemp or chia seeds They're a good source of antioxidants and nutrients that you're going to need to keep your energy sustained throughout the day. And then, if you're able to bring it, agave syrup or maple syrup would be great to top your oatmeal. 
All you have to do to actually cook this oatmeal is heat the water in a medium pot until it comes to a boil. Um, you can do this over a pre-prepared campfire like we taught you how to make in our prior episode, um, or you could do it over a uh, charcoal stove on certain campsites. Once the water comes to a boil, you're going to throw the oats in, simmer it for about 10 to 12 minutes or until the oats are tender to your liking, making sure to stir occasionally. Once you're halfway through the cooking time, you can add the spices, the maple syrup, um, any sort of pre-prepared fruit. So if you brought your berries, apples, anything along those lines, you can toss it in and cook it down with the oatmeal. Super easy I recipe. I really want to eat oatmeal now. Right? Doesn't it I make kind your of... mouth water? I mean, when, when did I eat dinner? I had yogurt. Jokes <laughs> on you. I haven't eaten dinner. This is not a good look. <laughs> we're like, you're, oh my god, you really need one. food to sustain yourself? And I'm like, hee hee, it's 9.30 and I haven't eaten dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I remember you didn't text that you were eating dinner. You said you'd scarf food down, but you never said what. Oh, oh, <laughs> so what I actually scarfed down was a single piece of baklava. Um, <laughs> this like, crazy Greek dinner over the weekend, and they brought home some nice ass desserts. So I shoved a piece of baklava down my throat. Yep, my throat. <laughs> well, no. So that is the oatmeal. The oatmeal um, is a really wholesome uh, way to get your energy to start the day. Like they always say, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um, you want to make sure that you have a filling, wholesome breakfast like something such as oatmeal would provide you. Okay, what about lunchtime? I want a snack, and I also want lunch. And I am notorious for just packing (laughs) peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but that is not really food sealable, nor is it actual cooking. But since I'm kind of going off of the idea that you can prepare these recipes ahead of time, um, something that I have prepared, which I think you'll be interested in, um, is a frittata. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, a little I frittata. Am. I am. I am a little frittata. A little frittata for a little boy, a little lad. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little lad who loves frittata. Exactly. I'm a little mm-hmm. lad who likes eight eggs in my frittata. So this frittata. Eight eggs. Well, I'm, I'm kind of going off the idea that you're going to have some people you're hiking or camping with. So maybe you want a little bit of a, of a hearty, wholesome family meal. You know what I'm saying? If I say wholesome one more time, we might have to start a drinking challenge with take a shot every time I say wholesome. Because it's getting to that Maybe. Point. Wait, wait, wait. I have a great one. Take a shot of water every time that Counselor Rain says wholesome so you can do what stay, stay hydrated. hydrated oh yeah <laughs> um so see, for this particular- see? we fucking tricked all of you <laughs> so for this particular recipe for the frittata yes i'm gonna say pack eight eggs um you'll want to have a, like a half a cup of milk so if you're able to prep this stuff in advance please do um, I'm not saying these are the only recipes that you can cook while you're camping, um, but they're just some of the ones that I think are fun if you have time to prepare. 
Um, then you're going to want to bring whatever seasonings you'd want to throw in there. So people will do freshly ground pepper, some sea salt, and maybe garlic and onion powder. Um, you'll want to bring an onion or a shallot, whichever you prefer. Some cherry tomatoes, basil, and then a cheese of your choice. I like to do gruyere. Other people can do whatever cheese floats your boat. I'm actually a really big Gouda person. I like, like Gouda? Asiago. Yeah, I can get down yeah, with that. I'm a, I'm a big Asiago person and a, and a Gouda person, like a smoked Gouda. But I'm going to be real. For as much as my body hates cheese, I absolutely love it. So I'll, I'll eat any cheese that comes my way. I did just say that my body can't handle milk, really. But <laughs> if you don't think about it being dairy, it totally doesn't count. Does it dairy. really count? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is it, is it really dairy if you don't think of it in that way? No. It's like when the tree not. gets cut down and falls in the middle of the forest, if no one's around to hear it, did it did it really make a sound? Unfortunately, or, or whatever it is. <laughs> unfortunately, I take the side of the physicist on this within this debate because um, you will see people scream at each other because philosophers will be like, but no one did so. It didn't matter. And then physics will say, yeah, when things fall, it makes sound. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in order to make your frittata, um, something else that you would have wanted to pack to ahead of time, if you're able to, is a skillet of some sort. You can do a cast iron skillet, a regular little pan, um, just something along those lines. Uh, and what you'll want to do is in a bowl... Um, you're just going to want to beat together the eggs, the milk, um, the salt, the pepper, the garlic powder, the onion powder, whatever you were able to bring um, until it's thoroughly blended together. And then once you're done, you're going to set that aside. Uh, as long as you're able to pack the oil, you're going to heat about a tablespoon to two tablespoons um, in your skillet, kind of over medium heat. If you're using a traditional campfire, you're sort of going to have to eyeball this recipe. Um, if you're using a charcoal grill, it might be a little easier. Um, the first thing you're going to do is throw in the shallots and onions or onions and saute them until they're soft and starting to get a little bit of color on them. So that's probably going to be somewhere between five and ten minutes, depending on your flame. Once again, you gotta, you're going to have to eyeball it like Miss Rachel. You got to sweat your legumes. <laughs> Exactly. I'm not wrong. <laughs> you do. They, they do got to be sweated. They got to break a sweat. Right? <laughs> um, once you get those onions a-sweatin', you're going to reduce the heat if possible. If not, you're just going to keep an eye on it. Um, but if you're using a charcoal grill, what you can do is raise the grate on the, the grill um, or move the skillet off to the side. And that'll kind of give you the same effect as reducing your heat. And once you do that, you're gonna throw the tomatoes in, stir it up for about a minute, followed by your egg mixture and your cheese. When you're ready, you're going to cover that with a lid or aluminum foil and scatter a few of your charcoal embers or campfire embers across the lid. Eventually, after about 10 to 15 minutes, the frittata will be puffed up and the eggs should be just set. And then your frittata will be ready to go. And you'll be the fucking camp star or the, the camp cook star of the century. You know, you may not be able to present this to Gordon Ramsay, 
but your counselors will be proud of you. As long as those eggs are set and that cheese is melty, I will have no complaints. Okay. This is fair. This is fair. Uh, Gordon Ramsay has the luxury of a huge production team. (laughs) So he's got a little bit more to work with than we do here at Camp Catastrophe. So you know what? Even if the food's a solid 7 out of 10, you're going to like it. You're going to fucking enjoy it. Okay? You know, I enjoy a solid 7 out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, long as you're not rocking with like a 4 out of 10, you know what I mean? Good motto for life. Get yourself a 7 out of 10. And then my last and favorite recipe, dare I say it, is Camp Chili. Ooh. Camp Catastrophe Chili, if you will. Triple C. Camp Catastrophe Chili. Triple C's. C. I would have liked it better if you used an alliteration like Camp Catastrophe Cornmeal, but I'll I'll accept this one. Or like well, Camp Catastrophe Coleslaw. Ooh, Camp Catastrophe Coleslaw sounds so good. <laughs> I might just have we to can... make a Camp Catastrophe cookbook. Oh, <gasps> shit. Wait, alliteration is fantastic with them, this. No, 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 not yet. Seriously? No, no time yet. <laughs> We're like literally on episode two and I'm talking about a camp cookbook. Let me stop. <laughs> Yeah, shut the fuck up. uh, (laughs) Sorry. I guess you don't want to know about Camp Catastrophe Chili. Shoot. No, I do want to know about Camp Catastrophe Chili. Tell me about it. Tell me. All right. All right. So, tell me. The great thing about this recipe is it involves canned food as well, so you don't have to worry about preparing or packing too much for this chili. Um, it's not so intense that you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, it's good if you bring like a medium pot. Um, so that's what we're going to be cooking this in. You could also bring like a Dutch oven if you have one that you could bring out to camping. Um, but if you can't, whatever, use your pot. You'll be okay. Um, for this recipe, you will have wanted to have packed ground beef. Um, if you do not eat meat, it's okay. You could stick with just the vegetable aspect of this and it'll still be just as wholesome because you are rocking with kidney beans and tomatoes and whatnot, so... Then you're going to want to make sure you brought an onion, um, some garlic, canned tomatoes. Uh, they could be either diced or stewed. Uh, and then um, kidney beans canned as well. Um, usually you can buy them like drained if possible. Uh, if you have to, you could always just drain the can at the campsite. Um, then you're just going to have your little seasonings that you could pack ahead of time as well, your basic salt and pepper, and then this particular recipe will be using chili powder and cumin. Once you have all of your ingredients prepared and ready to go, you're going to start by cooking the beef in your saucepan over about a medium-high flame. This will probably take between 10 and 12 minutes depending on your fire. Then you're going to want to throw the onion and garlic in uh, about halfway through the beef, Um, So if your beef has been cooking for about five minutes, you're going to put the onion and garlic in. Once you cook that until the onion and garlic are tender, you can start adding in the remaining ingredients. So your tomatoes and your kidney beans. And you'll cook that uncovered. Once you get that all in the pot, you're going to let it keep going for about 25 minutes to 35 minutes. Um, You could try keeping your campfire at... Uh, a lower flame and then cooking it for longer if you have the time because this will help your chili stew a bit longer and it'll result in enhanced flavor. 
Do so, not leave your fire unattended, though. Do not while leave you're, your fire while you're cooking. We we made you know this last episode. I think Never we made it very clear. Do unattended. not leave your fire unattended. Um, we warned you. So these are my three favorite recipes. I gave you one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. And even if you don't make these particular recipes, you'll still um, have a little bit of a reference to go off of. Um, so. I can also post these recipes on our website and on our Instagram so that you have them for quick reference. That now will that... be really fun. We're we're almost finished getting that up too, so uh, we'll yeah. we'll notify you guys when it's ready. Yes. Um. So now that I have gone over all uh all of the things that you can do to prepare for food while camping, I'm going to roll the ball over to Poppy, who is going to tell you how to seek food in the wilderness and practice safe foraging technique. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Poppy. My thank you. You're welcome. Welcome to um, Poppy is revealed to be a goblin who secretly came from the woods and should really have not been let out of that. And that is um, something that I contend with daily because I really do think that living in the woods would have been a delightful life for me if I could have been born as a chipmunk. Hashtag cottagecore. Um, I, well, I wouldn't call it cottagecore. I'd maybe call it bogwitch. Bogwitch, yeah. <laughs> bogwitch would be what the title I'd want to be. Um, so when we're talking about foraging practices, we're talking about finding food directly in the wild. So say you're not able to prepare all of these recipes at home, right? Say you're having some issues or you've run out of stuff or probably in worst case scenario, uh, animals have gotten into your food supply. We aren't going over it today on how to keep your food supply safe, but we will promise that in a different episode because that is the leading cause of when you're going to be chased by a bear and now you're losing calories and now you're lost in the woods and you can figure out how to get out yourself. But you need to have the calories to make it out, to expend that energy. So foraging in areas that are native to you are the most important practices to figure out what kind of food you directly will need to survive in the wilderness, right? There mm -hmm. are different flora and fauna, no matter where you live in your areas. And one of my highest recommendations is looking up different foraging guides near you. So foraging guides are varied by region, region to region especially, and they come in different qualities. Some are hyper-focused on flora, some are hyper-focused on fauna. The fauna will be a little bit more varied and possibly more scientific. And that's not the best for layman's terms. Um, because, you know, animals have a lot of different types to them, and scientists like to keep that covered. But in terms of foraging practices, the guides that you want to look for are the newest additions. Each guide that gets updated and revised is mostly revised based on what the environmental aspect of the world is in the mental state of, essentially. <laughs> um, so say we're looking at Australia that was on fire not two years ago. The flora and fauna have now changed at what is available and not available mm -hmm. to grow there and what you should and should not be harvesting right now. A big problem is that there's a lot of foraging that happens 
without people knowing what exactly they're grabbing. So I did make a small list of non-poisonous versus poisonous. <laughs> very, very toxic plants. And I'll tell you the range of toxicity. Um, so the non-poisonous plants, did I say plants? You, you did say plants. <laughs> the non-poisonous plants that you can find are ramps. Those are like wild leeks. Seaweed, fun fact, is very non-poisonous and edible when prepared correctly. Raw seaweed, I do not recommend it. Um, magnolia flowers. These are really good in vitamin C and you'll learn that later. Rose hips, wonderful med for medicinal aid, has been used for many years and have been preserved for many years. You're going to find a lot of recipes on those. They use them in tea, um, correct? Yes, you can use them in tea. You can use them to make jelly, actually. This is a really big one. When we go to food preservation, that one's going to be on how to make and preserve your own food. And I'll actually mm -hmm. tie it into the stuff that you foraged as well. Um, garlic mustard is a really good one. Stinging nettles. You would not think that that's on this list, but it is. But I do have how to prepare it later. Spanish needles. Pickleweed. Dandelion root and a lot more. Dandelion is a notoriously very edible plant, all mm -hmm. around edible. You can eat every portion of it, including the roots. So poisonous. I So when I made this, the poisonous ones are the ones I'm going to give more of a description of because a lot of them look like a different thing. And a disclaimer there to is... our campers, please. Do not yes. use these poisonous plants for evil. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, actually, um, I'm conflicted about that one. <laughs> I can't tell you not to be evil. I also can't tell you to use it for good, but I also can't tell you to do shit. You're just listening to us ramble. And <laughs> exactly. we thank you for that. We do thank you <laughs> um, for that, seriously. But I do want everyone to know you should not. Like a lot of my portion of the episode is actually telling you what not to do, if I'm being fully honest. I know I'm about to be a bit of a buzzkill during Aww. this section. <laughs> I know there's a lot. I know when I was talking to people about this and I was like, yeah, when we get to the one section, everyone's going to be upset. And I know yeah. it. it's fine. I was upset about it, but it's safe. So poisonous. The first one we're going to go over is Virginia Creeper. So Virginia creeper is confused with poison ivy most often. And the problem is that it's only confused with poison ivy in the spring. In the fall, it's actually a really incredibly pretty plant is the whole problem. And the fruits that are off of the vines of it look like grapes. So when the plant matures in the fall, uh, the green of the leaves get a red tinge around the outside of them. Mm. And then, like I said, the berries look like grapes. This is incredibly poisonous. Um, by poisonous, the range is either, okay, you're going to get an incredibly bad stomach ache and maybe the shits, and you'll be fine. And then on the whole other end, I do have fatal type poisonous okay that is like saying we're either gonna get two inches of snow or 20 feet of snow and you're, you're correct <laughs> you're correct that just be how it is that it essentially just be saying like that. do everything in your power not to take the risk <laughs> exactly correct 
That's why I'm listing it because I also can't tell you how poisonous it is case by case basis. Correct. If you eat this rain, you might survive better than if I, Poppy, eat this because I have a wildly different immune system than you do. And Correct. handling poison is something on a case by case basis. And it also depends on how many allergies to food that you have that can increase or decrease the risk. Neither of us have those kind of food allergies, but say if someone with a nut allergy did and they swallowed a seed, if someone with any, any of this stuff, it would be horrible. Celiac disease, especially if you swallow a seed that's already poisonous, you've double poisoned yourself. Right. Um, another one. So this one is very common. Um, so how much do you know about the plant you? It's spelled Y-E-W. Uh, certainly nowhere near enough to act like I know anything, to be honest. So please enlighten me. That's, yeah, that's perfectly fine. So you gets confused with spruce and with pine quite a bit, actually. Oh, get because out. they have the same looking needles. Yeah. You, though, is, um, it's more of a bush shape, which is the big mm. distinction. So it grows in little, like, bushels and little patches. And you, um, it has the evergreen leaves Every part of the plant is, in fact, poisonous. Um, this one is the whole other end. This is the will kill you poisonous. Um, there is, however, one specific part of the plant that is not poisonous. And you would not think so. There is a red berry that grows on the yew plant. And it has a hole right at the end of it. Um, you can eat the flesh of this berry. You just have to spit the seed out as fast as possible. Do not consume any portion of the seed. The seed is fatal to pretty much everything. Where uh, would you typically find to humans. this particular plant? Pretty much anywhere that you'd find pine. That's the thing is that it has the same temperament as pine does, but it grows mm -hmm. in bushels instead of an actual like tree formation. Um, I have a few that look similar but their counterparts are poisonous. And this is why I'm saying if you get the field guide, I do not recommend foraging until you are more versed in what plants are what. But I did have distinct factors on each of these. So you're going to make a joke as soon as I say the name of this plant out loud. Um, oh yeah, hit me. The plants we are going to look at, the first comparison, is prostrate spurge mm. versus purslane. Prostate splooge. Mm. Spurge. Spurge. Mm -hmm. I, it's not going to get better when I tell you how to describe the plant differences. Oh, please. It's actually me. going to get worse. It's actually going to get worse. Lay it <laughs> on me. So purslane, which is not poisonous, Purslane is a fantastic dietary vegetable. It's been harvested all the time. It's a old plant and it's a very reliable plant. It is not invasive whatsoever unless you are in a different area of the country. But again, check your foraging guides. And it is close to the ground and grows in like very tiny vine formations. It's very easy to not see and to step over if you don't see it easily enough. Mm. I will maybe draw some like quick image descriptions of each of these plants um oh, cute little spurge. diagrams like you did for the yeah backpack. more little diagrams 
uh, prostrate spurge um, looks almost exactly the same. The only distinction is that when you break off the twigs or like the stems from prostrate spurge, a milky white substance will drip no. out of the stem. I'm not even kidding. You've got to be joking. Nope. That's great. Yeah. This is just getting better I didn't and even, better. I, I didn't even intend for that joke. That is just how this plant works. It's turning into that kind of podcast again. Oh my god. <laughs> What's our anal uh, fixation with this shit so far? I don't know. But that's just, it's, it's a common poisonous plant. Yes. That is easily confused with the other plants was my big thing with that one. Yeah. The other one is going to be much more familiar to people. So this one is looks similar between lily of the valley versus wild garlic. Mm-hmm. So if anybody is a pet owner, you would probably know that lily of the valley is incredibly toxic for animals to consume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's also uh, coincidentally incredibly toxic to humans. Good way to check if your houseplant is toxic for pets or not is how waxy the leaves are in general. Um, that's a big no-tiff that this will not digest well. The whole problem with wild garlic versus lily is that before it sprouts its flowers, which are the easiest distinction, the leaves are the actual edible part of wild garlic that you like to use, right? So the leaves, when they sprout out of the ground, go out in the same formation. They look strikingly similar, but the veins on the leaves are different. Like wild garlic is a little more spread out in their veins, whereas lily is closer together. But this is not the defining factor to check if they are different. Um, The defining factor is wild garlic, because it's a member of the onion family and the legumes, as I said before, (laughs) Uh, when you break the leaves, um, the scent of onion or garlic will, you know, it'll get out in the air. You will smell it immediately and you will know that you are looking at the correct plant. Because when lily is broken, you can tell that it has no scent, no flavor. If you give it a quick bite, but you don't swallow it, it doesn't taste like anything. Mm. Um, You're safe, but it is a lily. Please don't swallow it. (laughs) Um, This is the only time we advise spitting. Sorry. Um, the flowering is also different but that one is just a difference between the bell-shaped flower which is the lily and then a spiky-ish flower that both are white for the wild garlic Um, much easier distinction based on smelling if you can't distinguish by smell you probably should not be foraging right now at your current state because you do not want to miss the biggest warning signs of whether or not a plant is toxic or not. Any of these plants can absolutely be nutritious. And then there are some that no one would ever think would be nutritious that you can. Um, one of them that I mentioned. So, Rain, do you have any expertise with stinging nettles by any chance? That is not something I've ever had to respond to, no. So, stinging nettles... They are actually in many places, but they are more of a deep in the forest kind of many places. Right. Um, They grow very wild. They like to go around in like bushels and by trees. 
and they're not too bad, honestly. The only problem is that they have spines on their leaves that you cannot detect by just looking at them. And these spines, I had to look this up, this specific <laughs> part. So you need to harvest them while wearing gloves because if you touch them, they kind of remind you of poison ivy. So sometimes people would confuse the two because they feel the same, but with mm -hmm. no rash, essentially. Right. So poison ivy will give you a rash and the sp it will spread. Stinging nettle will not spread, but it will sting and burn. Um, As the noted hair, in the name. <laughs> ah, yeah. The, uh, the hairs on it, they release formic acid when touched. And the best way I can describe this is that it's the same thing that is released when an ant bites you, if you have ever had okay. the misfortune of having that happen. Absolutely. Terrible. <laughs> but that's a, that's a good description to yes. compare it to. So now you know why you need to wear gloves while you have this. Right. Well, this is actually one of the best foods to eat. Um, oh, I will that. say that if you do if you do accidentally harvest these without gloves, um, avoid heat or scratching. Apply cool, cold compress, aloe vera, or baking soda and water paste, and just kind of like do what you would regularly do to get something like that out of you, and put maybe an anti-itch thing on it. But dab, don't rub. Um, so the way to eat these, though, is that you dry out the stinging nettles and then you boil, steam, or blanch in water before you saute. You can add them to soups, stews, other recipes by heating them up and cooking them with water, essentially, uh, which you'll have an abundance of in the wild, especially. Uh, we're going to tell you how to identify the good ones versus the bad ones. Um you get all of the formic acid to not hit you because I, under no circumstances, ever recommend eating raw stinging nettles. That is quite possibly the worst pain you can inflict upon yourself. Can you imagine? So you get an ant bite on your hand and that fucking hurts. Try consuming a thousand ant bites in your tongue, in your mouth, down your throat. That is what eating raw stinging nettles is like. And that sounds absolutely hellish. Absolutely hellish. Exactly right. Absolutely hellish. Uh, and no amount of chugging aloe vera water will fix that. It will just be time or maybe a trip to the ER, depending on your pain severity. Mm -hmm. um, and then... I also put this down uh, as a great joke, but it's also a very relevant joke. Despite us not living near a desert, um, and despite what Avatar has told you, please do not drink cactus juice. It will not quench you. It is not the quenchiest. Cactus juice is more often than not poisonous. Fun fact. I did not know that. It's... There are some cactuses you can do it to, which is correct. There are some that are psychedelic. There are some that are poisonous. Will you know the difference if you're dehydrated? Probably not. So you're once again taking a very risky chance in opening a cactus and attempting to drink from it. My, I feel so bad because the whole point of the foraging episode is like, yeah, here's what you can forage. But I'm over here like, please don't die while you're foraging. But I almost um, feel like that's better. 
Because you know all yeah. the things that you can't have or shouldn't have. So that makes it slightly easier to narrow down what you can have. That is kind of true. As, as long as you've got your guides, you've got updated guides that know if there are invasive species in the area to look out for. Like, fun fact, if you find an invasive species that is edible, you can forage all of it. That's a very big thing. Mm-hmm. So that was my next point, actually, is how to forage properly. So one big problem within foraging practices you see in the modern day is that, you know how you'll see a lot of people on TikTok essentially foraging and they get their little wicker basket out and then you see them fill the entire basket with uh, moriels are one of the ones that are in season mm-hmm. around the time that everyone goes out, right? Uh, a moriel is a type of mushroom. Um, don't look it up if you have that fear of holes because it will trip you out. However, it is a very delicious and buttery mushroom. Mm. It is incredibly safe, easy to identify in the mushroom family, and is more often than not wildly available. The problem with foraging and filling up a basket's worth of mushrooms is that you will deplete the local resources ability to replenish that area. So the safe way of harvesting is don't harvest every single one you see. You need to leave enough that the area is able to grow it back. Because if you cut down 10 trees, you don't leave any to grow, you have nothing. But if you cut down five of 10 trees, those other five can grow 10 more, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, This is a big thing with ramps, actually. Ramps grow in, like, formations. They kind of look very similar to wild garlic, actually. Fun fact. Um, And ramps, the recommendation is only harvest one leaf out of a bunch of three. So if you see a ramp in the ground and there's only two of them, don't harvest either. If you see a ramp that is growing a bunch of three, only harvest one of the three leaves. And don't harvest the one closest to the middle because that is the one that is growing currently. Mm-hmm. Um, by doing this, you won't deplete local resources, local populations, and it's really all about preserving the ecosystems that are around you, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. This one's the part of the episode in which um, I become a really big buzzkill because this is on mushrooms. <laughs> Um, I know, I know. I told you this ahead of time is that, um, you should not actually forage mushrooms until you are a very, very seasoned, either forager or mycologist. And the reason for that being that despite the ability to spore print, the only surefire way to know that you are handling a safe, healthy, good mushroom is under a microscope. And if you are listening to this podcast and saying, okay, I know mushroom identification now, and you go forward with that and you get a unknowingly poisonous mushroom that looks like a correct mushroom, it's almost not even distinct. Sometimes mushrooms will look incredibly similar down to the actual spore print 
and then you look at them under a microscope and they look completely different because one turns out to be poisonous, infected, um, infested even. Mm -hmm. It just depends on what you're grabbing. I will, however, teach you a neat trick that is spore printing, as I mentioned. Spores yes. are what mushrooms release as seeds or pollen. They are asexual reproduction where they just release their own spores constantly. Mushrooms, mycology is one of those things that biologists get angry about <laughs> because we still don't really know a lot about mushrooms, which is what makes them fascinating. Um, and Rain knows how much I've rambled about mushrooms in our lives together up until this point. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are a fascination for me, but that does not mean that they are safe. So I am going to tell you about spore printing because the surefire way I can tell you to identify them is by doing so. So a spore print is a print of spores that are deposited on a surface when a mushroom cap is encouraged to spore for identification purposes. The spore print usage is identification. Mushrooms have different colors, different scents, mushroom cultivation, and art, if you like that sort of thing. And I do like that sort of thing. So I can tell you how to make art out of this, technically. Arts and crafts, fun. Um, what my first recommendation is before you attempt any of this, I would ask you to wear a mask that you have, and N95 would be preferable because long-term exposure to mushroom spores, I don't know the exact extent of long-term, uh, it can cause lung inflammation and acute lung disease if you're handling poison ones especially. So please wear your mask while you're handling mushroom spore printing. They are incredibly bad for asthma as well if you accidentally inhale that sort of thing. Um, how you spore print is that you start by cutting the mushroom cap off of the stem with a sterile blade and place the cap gills down onto aluminum foil. Uh, if mushroom is dry, put a few water droplets on the top of the cap so that the cap is encouraged to spore because it normally spores in a moist, wet, and warm environment. Mushrooms do not like the cold. They like areas where fungal, fungal entities, terminology is strange, can cultivate essentially. That's why you always have them in the dark as well. Damp, dark, warm. <laughs> Damp, dark, warm. Place dark, warm. <laughs> um, next up, you have to place either a jar or a tub over the mushroom cap to lessen the evaporation and disturbance of the air around it. And by doing so, after 24 hours, you have yourself a spore print. By removing the mushroom cap, you can see an actual indent of a mushroom on the aluminum foil. Um, and then within this, you can grow your own mushrooms off of that or you can seal it so that you can have actual artwork off of such. Um, please leave the mushroom identification to a mycologist. And if you do want to go out for mushrooms, that is has to be a later episode because for now, all I am teaching you is what not to do, especially how not to die. Certain mushrooms are more common for people that forage. Uh, you'll see a lot of moriels. You'll see puffball mushrooms. Um, I believe hen of the woods is, it might be a different mushroom or it might be the same name of puffballs. But 
Um, all of those mushrooms are incredibly editable, editable, are incredibly edible. However, they also need to be identified for whether or not they are in decomposition stages or if they themselves are able to be ingested, depending on what stage of the season, et cetera, et cetera. Foraging is really interesting because you need to make sure that it, you need to make sure that you are not going to ingest something in the wild that will kill you faster than you can survive it. By looking out for the things not to eat, you can go for almost anything else. Anything with descriptors like the ones I told you about, the ones that are safe to eat, the ones that give off particular smells, the ones that have surfaces that are more matte, the ones that have more bunches, those are usually the safe ones. And I mostly only recommend vegetables in this scenario, as berries will have to be their own episode entirely. Um, berries and berry identification end up usually being more poisonous than the plant themselves. Um, and along with that, meat will also have to be its own episode because that in, its, in and of itself, we'd have to teach about what diseases are usually common around animals. And a good basis is just keep away from any kills that animals have gotten to around you. Um, you do not want to eat meat that could possibly be spoiled. You do not want to eat meat that is not disinfected, not boiled. You do not want to eat any meat that maybe an animal has eaten before you that could have transferred parasites. And leading into parasites leads into the common losses of dehydration in your body. Um, and I'm going to turn that over to Rain real fast, who will tell you a little bit about dehydration's effects. Um, so just to sort of give a little bit of a background, it is no secret that a majority, that a majority of our body is made up of water. Your body alone is made up of about 70% water. So on that note, and in that same breath, I say you should be drinking at least 64 ounces of water, um, if not more. What you should kind of be going off of is your body weight. Um, so if you take your body weight, divide it by two, you'll get the amount of ounces that you're going to need to drink. So for me, being 130 pounds, I divide my weight by two, um, I get 65 ounces of water. I personally add another 40 ounces of water onto that each day. It's a good benchmark. Do I always get that much water? No. But I was about to say, like, yeah. <laughs> how are you getting that much water down? How much do you piss in a day? Uh, that's a yeah, no, that's a realistic question. question. How much do you piss in a day? Um, I, I, I pee. Holy shit. When I'm at work, I probably pee like five to seven times a day. This might be TMI, but your piss must be like crystal clear. Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, like a big part of water is um, helping you like release toxins and flush your system out. So that's that's why, especially they go off your body weight. That's why they want you to drink at least half of your body weight in ounces of water. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you don't drink water, um, you start to exhibit signs of dehydration. Um, some of these signs would include the f like the first sign that you're gonna see, and this is not to be funny, but you're gonna s like f have a feeling of thirst. Um, 
and you kind of you know what that feels like it's when you have that like dry chalky feeling in the back of your throat um it's you've got that like that so little basically to the top of your tongue so basically every time you wake up at 3 a.m and you <laughs> go for your water bottle and you unintentionally drink the entire water bottle and then you pass back out and then you're like <sighs> dry heaving you yeah you're like dry thing. heaving you are gasping for air <laughs> your your throat did the thing where it just opens like a maw and then <laughs> the water just went right down yes um mm -hmm. and then on that note um once you start to feel thirst you may experience fatigue so if you find that you are more tired than you usually are uh, you could be low on fluids and you may need to drink a glass of water cramping is another sign of dehydration this is one of the earliest signs that your body is alerting you to being dehydrated um and i i know not to bring up your personal experience, but dehydration is something that you've experienced in the past. So can you attest to that? I can. So what Rain is hinting at right here is the fact that I, um, as your counselor, am very prone to heat strokes. Um, and heat strokes are very common in people who have underlying uh, immune problems, underlying disabilities within their physical capabilities. And uh, do you want me to describe what a heat stroke feels like? Absolutely, because it would go hand in hand with dehydration, so it'd be good for them to know what the signs and the warning signs are, if you're comfortable this is with that, correct. of course. No, 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 I'm totally comfortable. So the signs of a heat stroke, essentially, the, the first thing is that you'll start hyperventilating, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's that your heart is going at such a pace that you can't handle it, and you start kind of panicking a little bit. Mm -hmm. You start feeling that heat within you and your head starts getting really dizzy. Uh, for me, as far as I've been told, is that my face gets incredibly red and mm -hmm. then you start blacking out because of your hyperventilating, but you're trying desperately to cool yourself off. One of the body's tactics is that it'll start taking the blood out of parts of your body and pushing it towards the middle, towards your heart, essentially. And your fingers and your feet and your face will all start to get cold. Um, it is mm -hmm. not a pleasant experience from first-hand accounts, as I have had this happen many times before. Um, the next thing that'll happen is that you will start to lose feeling in those parts of your hands and body because your fingers are really, like, clenching in on themselves and you no longer are feeling the actual effects of water because you don't have anything in you. The most important things to get down to prevent this are electrolytes mm -hmm. and water and sugar, actually, in general. So the one thing that used to be, like, my go-to was, and I still do this, I will fill a bottle halfway with Gatorade and halfway with water so that it's at least diluted, so I'm not drinking straight up sugar. Right. But if I'm doing any strenuous activity, if you are going camping, if you are going hiking, if you are going to the gym, you need to have electrolytes on hand so that your body can regulate all of that expenditure of calories because a heat stroke is really caused by two things. For one, um, any water deficit that you would generally have, and then for two, a sugar deficit because that mm -hmm. is what your body will tap into next 
The signs of a heat stroke then, as you see it, is that the person will go completely pale and they will start to lose consciousness if they are not treated soon enough. And the go-to way to fix this is get them to a cool, safe area, call paramedics as soon as possible, apply cold compress, and then attempt to get water and electrolyte-filled water down their throat. Make sure that they don't choke. Um, as depending on how unconscious they are, um, you don't want to just pour water down their throat and accidentally drown them. Please do not accidentally drown somebody. Please do not accidentally drown somebody. <laughs> That's no, a bad but, thing. <laughs> no, but you certainly speak to the experience of like dehydration. It, like I said, like the heat stroke is very similar to the symptoms that you experience with dehydration because they're not necessarily the same thing, but they mirror each other in a lot of ways. So you mentioned, you know, like your pale or red skin. That, that's what happens. You get pale or sweaty skin when you're experiencing dehydration. And of course, because now your body is almost in like a, a fight or flight response, you hit your nausea and your lightheadedness. Um, so I'm happy that you're able to talk about that because it shows the personal experience that you've had with it. Um, and then people sort of know what to look out for. It is. So it's very common, actually, especially in sports. Mm -hmm. um, so people in high school... Um, you'll, you'll see kids, especially because their bodies are still in the processes of growing, they need more water. So you need to talk to coaches, you need to talk to parents, you need to make sure that those kids are getting adequate amount of water. It's almost anything. You need water, no matter if you are walking outside and chilling on your porch in the summer, you need water, whether it's the dead of winter and you're hiking because the cold will also dehydrate you. You mm -hmm. also need water when you are in the water. Right. You are still dehydrated, even surrounded yes. by water. And I mean, um, that's just speaking to the fact that like your body is just purely dependent on water and the amount that you're intaking. You know, like your nervous system is affected by how much your water intake is. Your blood pressure is affected by it. Uh, homeostatic processes in the body are affected by water. So it's like, yeah, the type of food you're eating is super important when you're camping and you're hiking. But also just water and the sheer amount you're drinking plays such an important role. And this not everybody is, um... takes it very seriously. Like I said, I don't always get the amount of water I'm shooting for, but... They don't. I'm going to expose you slightly is that rain has gotten in what other people have caused as internet fights, very specifically because she was arguing the fact that dehydration will kill you before starvation. Because it will. <laughs> because it will. How, how long will you take to die if you starve versus if you are dehydrated? Do so you know? I have gotten, like I said, I've gotten in to fights with people because there are reported cases of people lasting up to like 21 days um in technical terms of starvation that is because your body will uh, eventually start to eat at your fat reserves and your sugar reserves in order to keep your body going even if you're only eating so much a day like let's say you've managed to, to stave a couple of berries and you're eating that okay um if you're able to do that you, you can get mealworms whatever your body can last up to 21 days, but water? Yeah. So most people, 
um, in the same timeline that you would experience starvation, dehydration will take half, if not uh, a third of the time. So in seven to 10 days, you will die of dehydration. Up to 21 days for starvation. Seven to how many days? Seven to 10. As opposed Seven to, to 21 days that you can take. And now, this is also that's not... Like, s- that's barely over a week. Correct. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So you can survive double the time being starved than you can being dehydrated. Oh god. No wonder I've been getting so many heat strokes up until this point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that's why, like... I think it's a really good idea to have one of those really big hydro flasks. Like, people like to make fun of hydro flask girls, but you know what? They're just trying to get their water intake for the day. Um, my mom has this really cute uh, bottle that lists, like, you got this, keep going. Yeah, hydrate yourself, girl. Like, and it's just different levels. Like, stuff like that is so cute, and it helps you, you know? Take that while you're hiking, and you're making sure you're getting enough water. That's all. I have my good, good L.L. Bean water bottle. Um, I love it to death. I will not be posting it as it is hyper specific to uh, the style that I chose. And many people (laughs) know that I carry it around with me. Um, Wouldn't you like to know, weather boy? (laughs) (laughs) But on the topic of water, now what happens if you don't have any water? So this can count for whether in in the wilderness, whether you are having issues between your own water at home when you're filling up, this is three ways to purify water because, like we said, seven to ten. Um, so the first method is boiling water. Boiling water is essentially your surefire way of how to kill microorganisms and take out any bacteria, any, um, what is the word for it? It starts with a D. One more time? It's like, no, it's like stuff that's in the water. Hmm. It's fine. It D- doesn't matter. Not debris. No, it, I, yes, yes, yes. Debris. Any debris, debris in the yes. water. So boiling, you can essentially put any amount of water onto a pot in a stove, onto a pot, into a stove into a pot, onto a stove. Um, And you have to boil it for about three to five minutes for all of the microorganisms, toxins, bacteria, and anything else debris to be A, scooped out as you find it, B, killed and boiled out. After about three to five minutes or a longer period, if you forget about it, please don't let your pot boil over. That is very bad. Um, Leave it to cool before drinking. Or if you're making hot tea, make tea. Um, (laughs) The second way, so this one is very specific. Please do not try this at home. Um, I, you are not a professional. I'm a professional. I'm not. Yes. You're a professional, but it's fine. We're marketing this brand. Um, So the second way is by disinfecting the water. Uh, This one involves bleach. So you are not drinking bleach. What we are talking about is that 16 drops of bleach per one gallon of water is the ratio used to disinfect water in general. Um, To do so, uh, you cannot use 
any type of bleach that is scented, color safe, or bleaches with added cleaners. You just need straight up household bleach. Um, to do this, you grab a gallon of water, you put in 16 drops, and then you have to let the bleach water stand for 30 minutes. Um, if the water does not have a slight bleach odor, repeat the dosage and let it stand for another 15 minutes. Um, the purpose of this is to kill the microorganisms in a faster method. If you didn't feel like cooking your water, I still do recommend boiling much more as if you don't use the right bleach, that, that is generally not safe. That is not something that I would recommend, especially if you don't have the correct bleach on hand. Please do not DIY your bleach. Um, the third and final method we'll be teaching you is distillation. So this one's funky, and I'm going to probably have to draw another diagram for this, too. Diagrams. Um, so many diagrams. So little time. I hope you <laughs> campers know that I draw these in the middle of my research when I need a brain break. Um, so distillation, you take a pot. So you take that spaghetti pot that your Italian Mima has and you fill it halfway. Then you take the lid and you are going to attach the cup, any cup, mostly a mug might be good, something with grip. And you're going to attach that slightly hanging off of the lid so that the dome part of the lid faces the inner area of the cup. And while you are boiling the liquid, um, the water that is purified will go directly into the cup. This one is not my favorite, especially since A, I have burned myself on many objects before and oh, having a hanging cup. Episode. Yeah. Yeah. Don't use mustard, guys. <laughs> mustard is not good for first aid, like we have learned. Um, I have burned, I will burn myself on a cup if I am grabbing a hanging cup of scalding hot, freshly purified liquid. So my direct recommendation really is boiling water to right. make sure all of the toxins get out. And then you can test it out. It's mostly okay. And I do have only two recommendations for water to avoid and what is safe, okay? In the wild, if you really cannot distill your water, if you are really stuck in the wild and you cannot find anything, the one place that you do not want to look for water is any stagnant body of water. Mm -hmm. Any stagnant body of water, say a lake that has a perfectly flat surface, a puddle, the pool of water in the tree. It looks like it's made by a bog. You do not want to drink that. Mm -hmm. There are probably thousands of microorganisms. There are algae blooms. There are lots of issues with stagnant water. The good recommendation is any water that is free-flowing and is not salt water. You will know if it is salt water. It is salty. And the last water to avoid is any water that tastes sweet. Uh, Rain, are you, do you get what I'm getting at with that one? Sweet water? Sweet water. No, enlighten me. <laughs> Wait, you don't? Oh, man. No. Sweet water is a sign of cholera. So oh, shit. Cholera, yeah, literal shit. Cholera is when fecal matter 
gets into a water system and the mixing of such creates microorganisms that make the water taste sweet. Oh, it was yes. yeah, it was okay. a it's a water that's common in places and people that are acclimated to it can drink it. But if you have never experienced this type of water before, this is another potentially fatal thing because the bacteria when ingested will cause you to have it's going to be gross explosive diarrhea until you fully dehydrate and die. But who would have thought it would taste sweet? That's so crazy. <laughs> yes. That's that's why it's hard to detect because throughout history people used to like this water um and mm, good i think it was i think the person might be john snow i will double check my ass if that is not correct and tell Kristen to edit that out um but if it is not incorrect it'll be left in but cholera was undiscovered and eventually they found ways to fix the sewage system that resulted in sweet cholera infected water coming sweet, into the area. I believe cholera. the area that it might have been discovered is London is the big one during the industrial revolution. Um, but cholera in general, that is the one thing in the wild that will kill you as fast as possible. And on top of that, uh, I'd like to end my portion of this segment by saying when you are safe foraging, you also have to be safe in waste disposal to take care of your environment, mm -hmm. to prevent other people and animals from getting cholera. You have to dispose of any human waste and plant and food waste in any area that is not nearby a fresh water source, or you will contaminate that body of water. But yeah. And on That's that pretty note, much all my recommendations. Yes. So on that note, I believe we have covered plenty of what you would need to know about preparing food or finding food when you are camping or hiking. Well, until you see us again, stay hydrated. Stay sharp. And survive. to our camp maintenance man, Christian, our editor, who you'll definitely hear from in the future, Brady Kellum for creating the glorious intro and outro music you heard here today, and Juliet Hunter, who drew all of the artwork that you can find on our website along with transcripts of every episode. If you want to message any of our partners regarding their work, their preferred contact info will be in the episode description and linked on our website. Thank you for listening, campers.